0: Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Jeremy Weider. Rabbi Weider is the Joseph and Gwendolyn Strauss professor of Talmud at the Rabbi Isaac el Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University and an adjunct professor of Bible at Yeshiva College. He is the scholar-in-residence at Congregation Kehillat Yeshurun in Manhattan, a graduate of Yeshiva College, He was ordained by R.I.E.T.S. and holds a Ph.D. in Jewish Studies from New York University. Rabbi Weider maintains an abiding interest in Tanakh and leining. He has published two complete recordings of the full Torah and Haftarah cycle, one in Havara Ashkenazit and one in Havara Sephardit, and is the voice behind the leining on yutorah.org. He is a Rosh Yeshiva at the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University located in Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan, New York. Rabbi Weider was one of the first Americans to win the International Bible Contest and later graduated summa cum laude from Yeshiva University in 1991 and received an MS in American Jewish History from the Bernard Revel Graduate School. Jewish Studies. In 2005, he received a PhD in Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University. He is a resident of Teaneck, New Jersey. Rabbi Weider has over 500 lectures on Judaism captured on media and available online. He lives in Teaneck with his wife and two children. Without further ado, Rabbi Weider. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Materialism is an existential issue that threatens the modern Orthodox community from lavish Passover programs to over-the-top parties to exorbitant yeshiva tuition costs that some have called country clubs for the elite. Can you assess the current situation in our communities?
1: Firstly, thank you uh, for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here once again. The our community is a very wealthy community, although the wealth isn't evenly distributed. Uh, and it, like the rest of American society, particularly wealthy American society, but not only, it is a very consumerist society. And uh, and that can and that consumption fundamentally is very often conspicuous consumption. It's not something that's behind uh, doors that people don't see. And uh, and in some ways, it is. It's it, it's a bar to people entering when you have this type of uh, wealth in a community or this type of standard. Uh, The expectations in some parts of the community are, to my mind, absurd. Uh, The expectations of what people will spend on smachot, what people will do on vacations. Um, And it's a problem not only for the people who stretch to make those who really can't afford it, and it's not only a problem for the people who are envious, the have-nots in the community, which is really terrible. Um, it's also bad spiritually for the people who are engaged in this. So I would say that the situation in many parts of our community, um, and I would say this is true for the Ashkenazi community. It's true for at least some parts of the, of the Sephardi community. I know the Syrian community. This is not a small issue. I have a, a friend who has worked there as an educator for years. The way he describes it to me is that you can live in, in Flatbush, but you also have to have a summer home in Deal. And that's not sufficient because you have to go to the right vacation spots during the winter. And if you don't, your children are not going to have shiduchim, right? You have to, it has to be Inveigeth and Bindveigeth in the way I would term it. Um, and that's really, that's terrible. It's terrible for everybody involved. So I, I would say that it is a, a very challenging situation.
0: Mm-hmm. <sighs> So um, regarding, you know, the Torah mandates a redistribution of wealth, giving tzedakah and maser, and on the other hand, America is a capitalist system that focuses on the individual, which seems to counter the communal model that the Torah requires of us. So um, there are those who are going to defend the opulent lifestyle by saying, hey, I check every box of being charitable by the letter of the law. Uh, what's wrong with throwing uh, half a, you know, I can afford it. I can have a big party. And uh, there are those who say this attitude goes against Torah value. So where do we draw the line and are the top, like 10%, let's say, responsible for setting a certain tone?
1: There's a lot there. Um, so let and let me, before I talk about the last piece, I think it's worth exploring very briefly um, the assumptions, at the beginning of that question, uh, which I, the Torah mandates the, uh, a redistribution of wealth, giving my and Staka. Um, I, I don't know if the uh, if the term would be a redistribution of wealth. Um, I think if one were to step back and and take a broader view, um, the Torah economic system originally uh, was designed to prevent a, an inequitable distribution of wealth. Uh, namely, the system of Yovel and the system of Shemitah, both Shemitah's Carcass, but particularly Shemitah's Ksafim, the the, the, uh, the the solution of the loans at the end of the Shemitah cycle, the fact that all the fields went back to the original owners uh, in the Yovel year. Uh, so that seems to be designed to ensure that wealth uh, wealth and poverty are not entrenched. They don't pass from... You know ex- extreme concentrations of wealth and extreme concentrations of poverty don't pass from generation to generation if you make a mistake you mishandle your finances you have to sell your field but at the end of 50 years either for you at the end of most 50 years for you for your children those fields are coming back and something like uh you mentioned master and staka but really step back first like at shechan Pea, which is the are the torah's really original forms of tzaka, the Torah certainly also mentions tzaka and parshas rei, but originally it's the gleanings in the field, it's the things that you forget in the field, so those are really stopgap measures for people who have become impoverished in the interim, but in the long term, uh, in the long term, uh, the Torah designed an economic system in an agricultural world uh, that was there for preventing extreme concentrations of wealth, and maybe even, maybe more importantly, or maybe equally importantly, extreme concentrations of poverty. Uh, now the Torah system you speak about America as a capitalist system. America certainly is a capitalist system. America is not America is not pure capitalism. there's no no, no country that's capitalist that is pure capitalism. Each every country basically in the Western world is some blend of if you want to use the term socialism it may not be true in its technical definition but some you know uh, mixture between socialism and capitalism um, and I think it's fair to say that that is certainly where the Torah is. The Torah may be a little more—I don't want to say a little more socialist. It's a bit more communitarian. Um, it's a bit more communitarian, both in the um, legal sense and the philosophical sense. In the legal sense, so there are—you know—the way what I originally described Shemitah and Yovel, which again was in a—it was in an agricultural society, not in a capital-based society, which is a little bit tricky. How do you, how should we translate the agriculture, the, the the philosophy that the Torah is presenting in when we first entered Eretz Yisrael? And that entire world, how you translate that into society based upon capital is admittedly not a simple matter, but certainly the Torah's intent, what the Torah envisions as an economically just society, I think is certainly clearly there. Um, But it is certainly capitalist also in, in many ways. Um, now the the other piece when I talk about communitarian is not just the laws, but philosophically speaking, um, I think that the the premise which is laid out in, in very powerful and clear fashion by the Tor in his introduction to Chos Tzedakah, he writes that when you give tzedakah, uh, and I'll just put in my little pitch here, the proper share of tzedakah, if you can afford it, is is is, is a chomesh, is a fifth, not uh, not a tenth. A tenth is Amida Benonis, according to the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch, I think it's Simon Reshmentess in Yeridea, rules that you're supposed to give a homish. If you can't afford to give it, that's a different question. Uh, um, but the the Torah says that when a person gives staka, they shouldn't feel bad. They shouldn't look at it as if, like, how can I do this? My my, my bottom line in my bank account goes down. I, I feel bad about that. I'm, I'm giving away my money. So the tour says you're not supposed to look at it that way. You're supposed to understand that that which you have, everything which you have, 100% of your money is basically a picadon. It's a trust that was given to you by God. You are just a trustee. And you could imagine the tour doesn't spell this out. But if you... You know if you knew had knew somebody who was worth uh, you know 100 million dollars and they die and you're a trustee on the, the estate and you're not an heir and and the and the wealthy person who died designated that money should be given this way to this person that person to this cause it's not hard for you to give that money away because it's not your money so it doesn't bother you so you're supposed to look at your money you're supposed to look at your money that you have and of course it's your money halacha recognizes that there is theft you have, you have the rights to your possessions in one sense, but your perspective on that is supposed to be that it's not really my money. Uh, I, I think that in one particular area where this really shows up, and I think this is maybe one of the most burning issues, is the way we fund our yeshivas with parents paying tuition. And certainly in the modern Orthodox community, as opposed to perhaps the Yeshivish community, where the bulk of the money is paid by the parents, it's not—it's not that wealth wealthy people give a lot of money for buildings. They give some money to the scholarship funds. So certainly, people are very generous, but the bulk of the of the tuition, the bulk of the dollars, as far as I know, in in most of modern Orthodox Yeshivish is coming from parents paying tuition. Um, the halacha does not see tuition as an individual's obligation. A parent, a father has an obligation to educate his child. It certainly is, is such a mitzvah. It's such an obligation. But the Gemara Baba Basra says that Yeshua ben Gamla took that individual obligation and basically saw that it wasn't being fulfilled and he created a communal obligation. So fundamentally, when you learn the Gemara Baba Basra in the second paragraph, what you see, and it's quoted in the Rambam and it's quoted in the Shulchan Aruch, fundamentally speaking, education is a communal responsibility. Uh, and that is not the way Um, Orthodox, modern Orthodox, you certainly think in in this country. Um, We think our model is like private schools, like Horace Mann, uh, you know, in in Manhattan or White Englewood School in Englewood, which are private schools, which are always, which are paid for by parents paying tuition. But in the United States of America, that's not how most children are educated. They're educated in public schools, which are paid for by the cbor, not by the parents as they're sending their kids there. And it happens to be that that model is much more in tune with the with halachas model which is a communal obligation we expect people to send their children to yeshivas they have to in a sense to be part of the community to educate their kids uh so that they perhaps don't completely absorb the surrounding culture and yet in the United States of America for the most part the only people who send their their children to expensive private schools are very wealthy people if you're not wealthy you move to a you move to a a, a a a town which has good public schools. You buy if you can't afford to you know houses because those tend to be more expensive. You buy a small house and you send the kids to, your kids to the public schools and they get a good education. So we have unrealistic our our, our way of thinking about it. Um, is I don't want to call it a capitalist, but it's modeled upon an American. It's modeled modeled upon the wrong American system of education. It's modeled upon, um, upon American private education, not American public education. So I, I assume well, you probably have more questions to talk about that. But I think just in talk, talking about what is the Torah's perspective, so the Torah is much much more communitarian than certainly the conservative economic view in, in the United States. Uh, now, going to the more specific question of I give my tzedakah. Let's say this person gives their homish, They give their twenty percent. And technically speaking, under ordinary circumstances, you're not allowed to give more than twenty percent. Although, if you were if you were making a hundred million dollars a year, you were an executive of some firm, and you came to me, I would probably be willing to give you a kula and allow you to give more than twenty percent. <laughs> uh, and if you were if when you were called on your yom hadin before ribonu shalom, and you were called to, to you know to account for that. I will accept the punishment for it. Okay. But (laughs) generally speaking, let's assume that you get 20%. You give 20%. So now the question you ask is, well, can I spend on anything else that I want? And from a technical perspective, uh, the answer is yes. Um, And my wife always reminds me in talking about this issue. There's a story of a Hasidic Rebbe who one of the gavirons comes to him and says, Rebbe, you know, I eat every night for dinner. I just have stale bread and and, and, and water, uh, and that's what I eat. He wants to show that he's like this pious person. And the Rebbe says, to him, "No, no, you need to eat, you know, filet mignon, and you need to drink fancy wines. That's what you need to do." So when that when the Kavir leaves, so somebody, the, one of the people, turns to the Rebbe and says, "Why do you tell him that?" He said, "Because if he is himself consuming stale bread and water uh, for dinner, what do you think he's going to think that the poor people should?" So there is a you know there is a, a piece that. It's fair that if you want people to be charitable, they have to be a little charitable with themselves. But I I would say that a little charitable with themselves. I think that when you talk about a certain kind of conspicuous consumption that's out of control, so it doesn't matter whether you're given stuck or not, there's one of the most fundamental Torah values that's missing from this discussion is the concept of kedusha. And kedusha, I think in our community, even, even in the Orthodox community, perhaps outside the area of sexuality is non-existent. And it's a tremendous, tremendous challenge because we live in a culture, we are surrounded by a culture, we are certainly the modern Orthodox community and probably even beyond, even other parts of Orthodoxy are very much enmeshed in a Western culture that is described by, you know, currently moral psychologists, the term weird, Western educated, intellectual, rich and democratic and that particular demographic which is a tiny slice of america and an even tinier slice of the world doesn't amongst its values you simply don't have the concept of kedusha um, in fact i think if you were to go around in fact I, i'm saying this from experience not simply by guessing you would to go around to large numbers of people in our community young and old and ask them what is kedusha and they will struggle for a definition and I'd probably not get to the correct definition um, and uh, and that's because the culture that we are surrounded by in the United States, secular culture, is fundamentally has two characteristics. It's materialistic and it's hedonistic. It's seeking goods and seeking pleasure. And so what, in, in that culture, if you don't harm anybody else, if you're not hurting anybody else, everything is OK. But Kedusha is so central to almost every aspect of the Torah. And we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. What Kedusha means in a nutshell um, if you, if I have to give a three sentence definition is that human beings we believe are comprised of two parts our angelic side like the Malachi Asharis, and our animal side and kedusha means to be a little bit more angelic and a little bit less animal like it means to be precious as the Ramban describes it means to be a little bit to lessen our emphasis on the physical on the physical world so even even if technically speaking I, I the meat is the, all galat kosher everything is glad kosher so, the, as the Ramban says, you can be Zolobisovay, you can be a glutton, you can drink a drunkard, and the, the wine's got a hashkach on it, it's Mavushal, it's got seven hashgachos on it. You have the meat, which is, is glatt kosher, you know, with, with, with the badats and, and, and the OU and everybody on it. And you're a novel Bershah it, it misses the entire point of Judaism. So, it's not that you should be an ascetic and completely refrain from any enjoyment in the world. You know, it might be that on one side, a Nasir is considered a chote. On the other side, a nazir is supposed to be a kadosh. So when we are somewhat restrained in our behavior, when we don't engage in excessive consumption, that is fundamentally an act of kedusha. So even if it's true, halakhically speaking, you've given, you can afford to give chomesh a fifth, you've given chomesh, and now you say, well, I can consume whatever I want. So yes, if you were to just look at the lines in the Shulchan Arach, but if you don't read between the lines of the Shulchan Aruch, if you don't see, as a metaphor I've used in other contexts, if you don't see the forest for the trees, you're kind of missing, kind of missing the whole point of Torah Judaism.
0: I would even I would even add tsniut to to that because tsniut is is actually a concept that people are very, you know, um strict about when it comes to like covering their elbows. But to not re- women specifically. specifically. Yeah. Women specifically. Yeah it's a big part of like the conversation of being religious today but it's actually missing the overall point of like correct what does this actually mean like it's it's actually it should be defining a character trait not some a physical you know covering of the skin right
1: right so so sneot is one of the most important concepts and I've said a number of times publicly it's basically become a bludgeon to hit women with um but sniut is for everybody equally men and women. Uh, and and it is not just about dress. It is very much about uh, consumption. And if you want to understand the cross between these two, there was a, an article recently someone sent me. There was an article in one of the Jewish newspapers about a new restaurant opening in Manhattan. Uh, and it was going to have the gold-like leaf-coated hamburger. It was it's supposed to be $185. I think it hasn't opened yet. And I, I will give the owner the credit of stating in the article, I'm sure that hamburger it probably tastes good, depending upon your taste. It probably doesn't taste any better than a good hamburger, someone who knows how to make a hamburger on their home grill. But the owner was interviewed and said, this restaurant, I think this hamburger is for those who want to be seen. I think that said it all. It can, that really, He hit the nail on the head. you got you got to give me credit for that. Um, the question is, why is a community, is there room for this in our community? Why is anybody interested in it? And that's, I think, what your question is pointing to. But it is the quintessential violation of kadusha even if, technically speaking, it might be motor.
0: So, so my question really was about that person who's in the top ten percent. Um, Are they responsible in a way for like setting the tone for our values? Um, Because obviously, there's social I media mean, today, and then there, you know, the Tzniut thing comes up there as well. What, what, what do we expect from kind of the, that part of our community?
1: So, I, I think we 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 have a right to expect. We don't. It's not a halachic. Issue, we have a right to expect that people who are in a position of influence set an example for others, right? You can be there's something called, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to equate this exactly in a fashion, but there's something called a You 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 bear a degree of responsibility for the behavior that you induce in others. Um, so yes, I think that in the same way that Taumide have to be a role model, have to have impeccable personal behavior, personal integrity. So I don't think people always expect that from Kvirim, but Kvirim do set a tone in a community, especially in the areas that's their specialty. So if the wealthy people choose to not engage in excessive conspicuous consumption, it lowers the bar for everybody else. If they choose to do so, it raises the bar for everybody else. It's a chain reaction. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think that, again, from a halachic perspective, does it can I point you to the line of the Shulchan Aruch it violates? No, but it violates everything between the lines.
2: I just want to say from from a middle class perspective, um, I think a lot of the social media and the, you know, uh, lack of tenute in the context that we're discussing. I think a lot of the motivation has to do with the idea of trying to get your kids married off. I think that's the prime motivation and a lot, a lot of things that go on Uh, a lot. Yes.
1: And I might point out that that is very Darwinian. Right, it's a suggestion that I have resources and therefore I make a desirable mate. And the way I often describe the Kadusha I don't know what to call the kedusha conundrum, but we have our Darwinian side and we have our angelic side, and uh, and we're supposed to, uh, you know, we're supposed to uh, emphasize
2: the angelic side, not the other one. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, for the third question, one of the most troubling outcomes of living in a materialistic community is that it creates unrealistic expectations, and people feel that they have, they have to live beyond their means in order to keep up. People do not want to leave their family and community in order to afford a modern Orthodox lifestyle. Most people aren't making $300,000 a year, and even those that are hundred have to spend $100,000 in yeshiva bills and live month to month, even with that salary, which is insane. Sadly, yeshiva tuition is arguably the most effective, effective form of birth control. If you make a middle-class American salary, you cannot afford to live a modern Orthodox lifestyle, which is mind-boggling. Can anything be done about this?
1: That's a big question. Um, I I think that the answer is, uh, let me break this issue down into uh, sort of three components. I always used to say it was two, but unfortunately in the post-COVID world, I think there's a third. Um, there are three things that make it really, really hard economically on modern Orthodox Jews. Uh, the one that's most recent, which has always been there, but it's gotten much more extreme in post-COVID area. I can speak just in my own community in Teaneck, is the cost of housing. The cost of housing was already expensive before COVID, but something happened and things really skyrocketed. And while, in the, while you know, there probably are still some places. Let's say, to just take an example, I live in Bergen County. There are communities which you could probably still find a smaller house that's a little bit more affordable. It's gotten much, much harder. I think before COVID it was, again, you you had to make certain sacrifices, but it was a little bit easier to do. Now that, that particular problem is a function, uh, is not really a function of our community. Other than that modern Orthodox Jews by the nature of their professions and by the nature of their roots, tend to be concentrated in areas that are very high cost of living. But fundamentally, that housing cost piece is an American problem. It's not just a modern Orthodox problem. Right? America's face, America has a housing shortage all over. In in the city, big cities that people want to move to, it's particularly acute. It's a totally separate topic of what has led to that. Um, but that, that's a it's a real problem, but it's not a it's not a Jewish or orthodox problem per se, but it makes it hard. The two that are our problem and it's not one of them Is not only our problem but it's in our control are the question of opting for a materialistic lifestyle and yeshiva tuition and i want to for the moment separate the two of those i think that they have sort of a common root attitudinally or the problems that we have stem from a common attitude towards money but for the moment separate them for the following reason if i choose i can live in a small house I can drive used cars. I cannot go on vacation, or I could go on the most minimal vacation. I could go into the city and, you know, ride the Staten Island Ferry. Okay, that's a little extreme, but, uh, you know, and and go, go to places in the city and not spend a whole lot of money. And I can live a modest lifestyle, but that doesn't solve the yeshiva tuition problem. The yeshiva tuition problem is the problem that I can't solve. The only way to solve that is not really an acceptable solution is to send my kids to a public school. But that. Kind of undermines the whole point. So the the reason I, I distinguish between these two because one of them is an individual's problem on some level, one of them is a communal problem. Now I understand that even materialism spills over because it's very hard to raise your kids in a community where they turn, they look around and everybody else is going to Aruba on vacation and, and they you know they go to Van Soen Park. Um, I, that is very difficult, but at least you can choose to live with those difficulties and make that choice. You can't not pay yeshiva tuition. It's not an option. And so I, I think that both of them require extensive attention and, and, and particularly the part of the rabbinate talking about these issues. Um, but I want to at least focus on the yeshiva tuition question because that's the, I'll call it the pig in the steak. That's what's breaking people's backs. And let me first begin by stating that I want to dismiss the people have said that, that the problem with yeshiva tuition is a values crisis, not an economic crisis, because people want to spend money on other things. I'll grant you that there may be some people who quetch about yeshiva tuition, some people who try to cheat on the margins, and they like to live high, but not pay yeshiva tuition. I think that's a very, very tiny slice. I think that you have to think about a large number of people in the community for whom are not living high, and that's not what they aspire to. They aspire just to survive it. If there's one thing they want to be able to spend money on, would be putting it away for retirement, uh, putting it away for retirement, which is not, I don't think, should be considered a luxury. Um, you know, we have, as someone has pointed out, we have a retirement crisis coming also of all the people who couldn't save because of having to pay yeshiva tuition. And they weren't going to Aruba and they weren't going to Miami Beach for vacation. Uh, but if you just do the arithmetic, you know, you said uh, you said $100,000. I disagree with you. At least it depends where you are. But in Bergen County, if you have four kids in yeshiva, okay, maybe you were, maybe that number assumes three kids. If you have four kids in yeshiva, you're talking about a tuition bill easily. It could be very much in the for most people, $100,000, which means to pay that, you have to earn $150 pre-tax just to pay that yeshiva tuition. Yes. That doesn't yes. count a single penny, a single penny for anything else, for food, for shelter, for transportation, for insurance, for retirement, to get vacations, anything. We could talk, we could spend hours talking about what the implications are. So we have to kind of limit ourselves. But you ask, can anything be done about this? And the answer is yes. Um, The answer, it's a huge, huge lift, but it can be done. It's not a financial, it's not financially difficult. It is educationally difficult. It's about teaching a community to think differently. Take a very simple proposal. And I don't I haven't been able yet to crunch the numbers, but I am actually working on this with other people. Um, but if every family, and again, there, there you can ask a hundred questions on how it would work. There are smart people who can solve all those questions. I have one issue. Can I get people to fund the yeshivas commonly? And if every family in Bergen County gave, let's pick a $20,000 to a central yeshiva fund, I suspect that maybe the number needs to be a thousand or 2,000 more, maybe it's a tiny bit less that could pay certainly for the entire annual budget of all the schools now there are two advantages if every again there are some families who can't retirees might not be able to but if you go to anybody who's got young kids or is anywhere in the tuition cycle and you tell them could you pay twenty thousand dollars a year the answer is sure i can now what you have to have in this for various reasons is you'd have a small tuition it might be a couple thousand dollars there might there might be some more complicated system but in principle in principle Let's say let's say we only had one school, but, you know, it's more complicated because we have many schools, you pay a couple thousand dollars a child. And then every year, the one they're like regular tuition and then every year as you're living in the community from before your children are in school till after your children have graduated and they have their children, you pay $20,000 a year, which would be tax deductible. We can't mandate it. That's part of the challenge uh, to a yeshiva fund. And that would fund the yeshivas if we were to succeed in doing that, which is going to require educating people, showing people why it's a much better system, not only because the Torah, the Torah values issue, but because what it would do potentially for the quality of spiritual and even physical life for people in our community, that's a game changer. The arithmetic is not hard to work. It might be that you that your amount is not $20,000. I, I like the idea that its it may not be the same amount, but it's tied to your real estate taxes in some way it's 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 scaled to your real estate taxes which are both public information number one what you pay in real estate taxes and number two it's a indicator of what you think you're able to spend on um that money goes you know 50% further than regular tuition dollars because it's tax deductible and 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 you as you realize it's really funding like public schools right it's over the course of a lifetime not in a concentrated period that changes the community in so many ways it means, I'll start with the following, it means to be a modern Orthodox Jew, you only need to earn $20,000 more, and if you're paying tuition, add another 10, $30,000 more really, than people will send their kids to public schools. Think about what that means. Right now, in your peak years of tuition, you've got to be making $150,000 more. What kind of professions pay that? But now say, you know what it costs to be an modern Orthodox Jew? $30,000 more than your neighbors. That right. changes the entire game. It changes the professions our children can go into. It changes the stresses. They're not at the time when their kids are young. When you have all sorts of those kinds of stresses in life, you're not un- and you're not at your highest earning. Typically, you're not crushed under this burden of tuition.
0: My only concern, my only concern though, is that like you see it in Florida, where there's now government subsidies going towards Yeshiva tuition or some of its tax money, is that the more money you know, like. The more opportunity there is there for them. Oh yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I know what you, whatever
1: question you can ask, smart people figure out the answers. You're going to talk about probably it's going to drive up tuition. Right. Exactly. And there's more money. I agree. So that's the problem with American colleges. Government, the federal government made so much in funds available. So instead of saying, oh, now we don't have to charge tuition. Now, you know, administrators, universities say, oh, we have another revenue stream. Because If the government is helping fund people, well, we can charge even more tuition. So there have to be there are there are 100 questions. This That's an easy one to answer. The answer is that when you when you taking these communal funds, you get probably. You know, the communal fund says, OK, this is the amount of tuition per kid that we're sending to school, wherever the parents enroll the child. And you as a school, if you want to get that, you can't charge more than X tuition. You know, A very smart person I know in finance said, given the differences in New York, this might be a New York thing where you have such a broad range of, of I mean, you, know, you have a, some very expensive schools. You might have something of a sliding scale tuition. But at the bottom would be this most of the schools that would be paid two or three thousand dollars a kid for tuition and and if the school wants to charge twenty thousand dollars they're going to be forfeiting money they're like vouchers it's like creating our own vouchers but there's no question then that has to be that you know there are a hundred rules to work out that i i i figured out a hundred questions i i hear i've rarely heard from people a question that i haven't really thought of that's going to be difficult to work on but my feeling is that we don't have another choice and if if we if if those who are in the position to influence others both rabbanim. And Balabat and are I'll call the connectors, using Malcolm Gladwell's term or the term he borrowed, if we can change the way people think about paying for it, um, and particularly those of us, I'm in that position, we're not paying yeshiva tuition anymore. Understand, even though I paid it, I will, I will pay. I will be happy to create a future for my children, for my grandchildren, for other people's children, other people's grandchildren in the community by changing the way we do that. So your question is a good question. I agree 100%. That one I can answer easily. There are harder questions to answer. We will figure those out. If we can convince people that this is what you have, this is the way to fund our yeshivas.
2: Yeah, I think- Right, the persuasion, the
1: persuasion is the hardest part, for sure. The persuasion is the hardest part. I, I, I understand. Look, yeah. you, I found in conversation, I did an event in Bergen County. I had a very close friend who, you know, who they, they're incredible. They're not high earners. They struggled to pay yeshiva tuition. They did. And now they're done. And they're not living high, but they like now you're turning and saying to them, well, you give, you, can we give $20,000 a year? And I said two things in that presentation. I wasn't aiming at him that he said really made him rethink his, his opposition. One, I said, this is the Torah way of doing things. The fact that we've done things wrong until now doesn't mean we should continue to do things wrong. As the Gemara says, Misha Ochal Shum If you eat garlic and your breath smells terrible, what should you do? Eat more garlic? So but I understand that people have str- some people have struggled and they've paid and it's a hard ask. But the second thing I said, and again, this doesn't affect them, but it affects others, is that as I mentioned to you before, this means that in theory you need to earn twenty, twenty five thousand dollars more than anybody else in order to be a matter Orthodox Jew. If we can do that, that's incredible. It's a, it's a game changer, um, and it brings questions with it. Someone asked me last night and said, "Ah, but wouldn't that free up income for some people, where now they could spend on anything they wanted?" And on one level, I would say, "So what? As long as nobody has to struggle to pay yeshiva tuition." And number two, I agree. We have to talk about kedusha and materialism. It's not it's not an either or. But if if the price I had to pay. For solving the yeshiva tuition crisis and getting all those people who want to take six vacations to Aruba and Costa Rica and everywhere else during the year, if the price for that, which they're doing anyway now, is that nobody has to struggle, if that's the price for nobody struggling paying yeshiva tuition, it's much better than what you have now. So it's not, it's, <speaking in Hebrew> but I really think we need to focus on that yeshiva tuition question because that's really the game changer.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Bensi, you want to take the next question, the fourth question?
2: Sure. You mentioned on another show that the financial stress is a big deterrent for converts and Bali Chuva. They have a hard time with the proud scourging of holiday supermarket shopping, can't afford to go on vacations to begin with. Do you see a breakup of families, the single crisis, the singles crisis, and substance abuse as direct consequences of this anxiety, or is those are those unrelated phenomena?
1: Well, uh, you're asking me to prognosticate here, which I will gladly do for you, but I, I, I introduce it with the caveat that these are only my prognostications. I cannot obviously speak with any degree of certainty. I don't see those U.S. families, singles crisis and substance abuse. So yeah. I, I'm no expert here. If I were guessing substance abuse is more likely to be a people who have too much money than people who are struggling. I, I mean, I think it's true generally substance abuse you will find in the very wealthy and then in the people who have no hope. But I don't think so much in our community. We have the very wealthy. I, I'm not saying people aren't struggling under the weight, but they're not the people who can't find any job, you know, are in are in rural America, you know, who are struggling, which is a different kind of crisis. So I think, if anything, materialism is the cause. Materialism or materialism is a sign of emptiness typically speaking in other words people's lives are empty they're trying to fill it with something and substance substance abuse is another way alcohol marijuana and worse are ways of filling an empty void so so i think that's different um, but if you talk about breakup of families I think there are many, many causes to that. I, I've been told by people who in the yeshiva tuition committee, it happens. I don't know if that's the primary driver or not. I, I, I always believe, um, I like to say that I'm a half Marxist, meaning I buy all the kashas, but I don't buy all the answers. I think okay. e- economics explains lots and lots of things. And when you have in a world in which it's ishtachas no, teynaso, it's a much easier world. It's worth noting that money is one of those things that too little or too much are both bad. I'm not going to decide which is worse. Um, most people who are really poor would say, give me the Nissan of too much wealth. But I have to tell you, there are people, probably there are some wealthy people who would have been much better off being poor. They would have had more meaningful lives. Um, so I think economics, or or as I like to say, that's, you know, often my audience now is getting too young to understand James Carville's three words written and written on the uh, war room board in the first Clinton campaign was three words, the economy, stupid. And I think economics explains lots Everything that's going on in this country, almost everything can be explained by economics. Um, but so does that contribute to the family breakup? Yes. But there's there are lots of other pathologies, too. Um, but the singles crisis right. to me is in a weird way the most interesting one. Um, very briefly, because that's it's a different topic. The primary problem in the singles crisis is a demographic imbalance. There are far more from young women looking for a shidduch than young men. Now, there aren't more from young women born than from young than from men, because the birth rates in our community are roughly 50-50. And I'm not 100% sure, but my sense is that if you look at day school graduates, roughly the same number are graduating boys and girls from yeshiva high schools in the Maduroch Orthodox community. So, the question then is, where did all the young men go? That That's the $64 million question. You can have spend all the money you want on singles events and Shavchanos and so on. It doesn't help you, short of, I say this jokingly, of being Matthew the Chayim um, Rabbeinu Gershom. Because, short of that, there just aren't enough bodies. It's a game of musical chairs. I, I, again, I want to emphasize, I say that only tongue in cheek. Nobody, I'm not suggesting that we should be Matthew the chaim Rabbeinu Gershom. Uh, but but it's 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 a it's a numbers game it's simply a numbers game and what I think is clear to a lot of us um there is certainly more gear more conversion and more ballet it appears amongst women I know when it comes to there's far more women than men far I mean in you know multiples three four times the number of women men and many of whom are not coming because they're attached to Jewish men some are uh, and my sense amongst Balet chuva also talking to people in the field at least in the modern Orthodox world is there are far more women, than men. Um, but it's not just that. It there seems to be pretty clear that there are far more younger men dropping out than young women. Um, and that requires its own sociological study. If I were a betting man, it's not the only factor, but the looming economic albatross around the necks of young men, especially if they're not like the superstars or really they're going to go into finance, for those who sort of can hack those careers, they're not they're not. Students enough to get into medical school, they're not going to get jobs in finance. Uh, I would imagine, I don't know, I would imagine for many of them, it's just much easier to check out than to face that looming burden because it's just enormous. Uh, anybody can do the arithmetic before you even get the yeshiva tuition is expensive. And then if you're smart enough to do the arithmetic a little bit beyond that, you realize how impossible it is. Uh, so I, I think, I don't know. Uh, I would like to believe, because I'm an optimist, that if we solved the yeshiva tuition issue and we did a little bit of work on the materialism issue, we'd have lots fewer young men dropping out, because at least that, pre- I think there are other pressures on them too. Uh, but I think that this, I imagine, again, I, I don't say this with certainty, that this is a significant piece of what's intimidating, what's and 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 what makes it just easier for them to say, check, please.
0: That, that's the sense that I get. You know, I speak to a lot of single guys, and just the pressure of the expectations, it's just overwhelming. So I I definitely think that you're onto something there. And for the last question, this kind of ties in, um, financial pressure causes some people to cut corners or get involved in businesses that don't have any social utility. Um, I feel that yeshivot should provide classes on home economics, accounting, and career guidance that prepare uh, students on what they should expect uh, in terms of being able to afford a modern Orthodox lifestyle. Uh, are we pushing our children in the right direction career-wise? Um,
1: there are several pieces there. And let me first talk about cutting corners. Um, true story. I was at a wedding relatively recently after I had done a uh, a podcast on this topic that got around a little bit. And a fellow walks up to me, you know, uh, in the Shmorg time, introduces himself, uh, and he says that he's uh, an agent for the IRS. So my first response is, I I paid all my taxes. I didn't do anything wrong. But he was coming over to express his appreciation. And one of the things that he said to me was that he works in whatever particular group, and he's the visible Jew. He's wearing his kippah and the guys in his unit say to him like what's going on here now what i i didn't ask him for details and i didn't ask him for demographic but what you what what i walked away with understanding is there are many i don't know which stripe of orthodoxy it could be all stripes of orthodoxy who are running into enough trouble with the irs because they're cheating on their taxes now are they cheat? the truth is are they cheating on their taxes just to cut corners because they can't make it otherwise because lots of wealthy people cheat on the taxes. In fact, I would I would bet that it might be even more common there. Uh, and I would certainly say that people who are salaried can't really cheat on their taxes. I mean, you can cheat on the margins. You can't do very much. It's the people who tend to be very wealthy. People who are in business, some are not so wealthy, but who tend to cheat more. I don't know whether it's cutting corners to survive or it's cutting corners because of greed. Um, so I, I can't really say for sure. Um, but, uh, but then the next question is, what kind of professions do people choose to go into and that i think is a real concern one of the things that's happened in yu just as an example in the last 10 years there was a point where the one of the people who had gone to israel you know one of the uh, uh, rabbinic administrators who had gone to israel came back and said to us for the first time psy sims is larger than yeshiva college shiva college is the kind of humanities uh humanities and sciences whereas sims is the school of business. And, you know, and and pre-med amongst the young men has shrunk, really shriveled up in why, which is kind of astounding. In my day, you wanted to make a lot of money. You went to medical school, right? It was really a challenge, you know, getting a near perfect GPA, doing well on your MCATs. You got into medical school. You had a lot of years of training, but then you had it made. It's not whether it's whether medicine is, is not exactly what it once was. The perception now is you can't make enough money as a doctor, which is insane. But it also means that that more and more guys feel, and I, I know I know that there are many students who feel they have no choice, not because they want to. they have to go into finance broadly speaking. yeah uh, and there is an important there's there's certainly a meaningful need for uh, capital in a capitalist society. I think it's also pretty clear that the financial sector has taken on an outsized role. In our economy and has done a lot of damage and there's a lot of what's done that has no social utility on a good day and is truly and our young people many of them those, those who have the shot feel like they have no choice but to do that and that's terrible right if someone loves finance if it just you know leaves them dreaming at night thinking about it okay so that that's what that's what they're really interested in they should behave ethically hopefully find the parts that are a little and more social utility but so many young people are being forced into careers that they don't want to be in. And if there's one place that this is even the crisis, is, it's not looming. It's here, is we can't get educators. It's true in America generally, but it's acute in, in, in the in the Orthodox community. And what I have been told by heads of school is that it's not, it, once upon a time, it was hard to find modern Orthodox educators. Because modern Orthodox Jews like, God forbid your child will be a mechanic or a rabbi. That changed for a long time. I think in the 90s and the early aughts, and I think that after the 2008 recession, where the wealth gap started to really accelerate in America and in our community too, it became seen as less and less viable to go into a, clear, a career of clay kodesh. There is a shortage in the pulpit. There's a real shortage in schools, uh, and uh, they can't find teachers, and not just from the Modern Orthodox community, from Lakewood, from the Yeshiva world. It's harder and harder to find, um, and uh, and it and and I was told I didn't verify this firsthand that the Russia yeshiva in Lakewood told their students that they shouldn't marry uh, teachers because they don't make enough money. They should marry OTs and PTs. And if that's true, and whether it actually happened or not, I don't know. But I'm I'm told from other places that the young women don't want to go with the teacher anymore. First, whether or not because of things that the Russian yeshiva might have said, um, that means there aren't going to be teachers, and the shortage is here. The short, it is already a desperate shortage and it's only going to get worse. If you change the economic model of our community, if you shiva tuition, which even granted educators get a discount on, but in many places, it's still, it's not like it's hundred percent off. Um, but if you change that model and you, and you have to address the material this issue, you might find that you have a lot more people interested in going into mm. in and um, so, so I think that it, and so and to go to your last question, I mean, which I agree hundred percent. We don't have financial education in our schools. It's a disaster. It needs to be done. Um, there are curricula out there. It has to be we we need a, a financial education for Torah Hashkafa about finances and economics. We need financial education for practice to know exactly how it is to be financially responsible, to understand all the vehicles of savings, et cetera. Uh, we have business, to teach our
0: business ethics. I think business. If people are getting, you know, unfortunately, there's a small segment who are getting involved in like cash advance and these kind of, you know, you know, I, I don't yes. know. But, but that's that's an example of people getting desperate and trying to make a big a quick buck, and they don't realize that the anti-Semitic, uh, you know, can that they're kicking down the road that's going to eventually come back to haunt. There's,
1: there's enormous need for everything related to money in our system because right now we have virtually none virtually none uh, and both from a pra- practical and a spiritual halachic perspective we need a lot of it we need both of those sides so yes
0: yeah well thank you so much for this uh, i think this is a great conversation starter and i i urge everybody who's listening to listen to rabbi Wider on other podcasts uh he talks about this um you you're on the kosher what is it called kosher, kosher
1: money podcast Kosher yes.
0: money podcast um, and other podcasts uh, like this so thank you so much for coming on again and really appreciate your time
1: thank you guys so much for having me
2: oh, thank you
0: hey guys thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism demystified podcast we really appreciate all your support and your feedback if you want to help us grow the podcast keep spreading the word share it with your friends family or whoever you think would be interested we also opened a Patreon so you can become a patron contribute any small amount you'd like which would really help us grow the show um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys